Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Keish. I am the Warden of Rhodes House. It is my great, great pleasure and honor to welcome you to this event that is hosted and convened by the Atlantic Institute, our wonderful core partner organization, which is working with people all over the world to build healthier, fairer, more just, and more inclusive societies. And I know that we're also joined by Rhodes Scholars, by Schmidt Science Fellows, by Atlantic Senior Fellows, of course, and by Roddenberry Fellows. The Atlantic Institute has been organizing convenings that are focused on the greatest challenges of the day and on the challenges of our present moment and how we can bring the lens of justice and equity to addressing them. And the COVID-19 pandemic is one of the challenges that is facing everyone around the world. And we are so thrilled this evening or morning, depending on where you are, to be joined by three extraordinary individuals, each of whom has very special expertise to bring to the question of how we can distribute a vaccine if it is ever to be developed in a just and fair way around the world. So a very warm welcome to our speakers who bring such extraordinary wealth of experience to the conversation tonight. Without further ado, I will turn you over to the Program and Impact Lead, Senior Fellow Engagement at the Atlantic Institute, Tanya Charles, who will moderate the event. Tanya. Thank you, Elizabeth, for that wonderful welcome and for setting the tone for today's webinar, which looks at the question of justice as it relates to vaccine development around COVID. Welcome to our audience from all over the world. It's my pleasure to moderate this session with colleagues and friends that I've worked with in this area of vaccine development, justice and health for a very long time. So here we are, it's September 2020. We are in a race for a vaccine to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. Research is happening at breakneck speed. About 140 vaccines are in early development and around two dozen are now being tested on people in clinical trials. While this is wonderful news, it does raise a series of questions about access and about inequality. Who will have access to this vaccine? How will the effects of structural inequality and poverty that have existed and persisted for decades before this pandemic be addressed when this vaccine becomes available? And we do hope it does become available. Furthermore, how can we ensure that this is a people's vaccine, meaning that it's a vaccine that everybody will have access to following the principle that our pandemic is not over until everyone's pandemic is over. Noting, of course, that we are experiencing this pandemic in differing ways and with different impacts. Thankfully, it's not my task to answer these questions. We have the amazing keynotes to join us and help us unpack these issues. So it's my pleasure to introduce the first of these, Professor Alan Buchanan. Professor Alan Buchanan joins us today in his capacity as Research Professor of Philosophy at the University of Arizona in the Department of Philosophy and Freedom Center and as Distinguished Research Associate at the OIHERO, I hope I said that right, Center for Practical Ethics at the University of Oxford. He was, of course, the James B. Duke Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at Duke University as well as investigator at the Institute for Genome Sciences and Policy at Duke. Professor Buchanan works mainly in political philosophy, the philosophy of international law, bioethics, and social moral epistemology. Very relevant to today. 
He's the author of Institutionalizing the Just War, The Heart of Human Rights, and 12 other books, the latest being Our Moral Fate, Evolution, and the Escape from Tribalism, which was published in 2020, and in which he asks, is tribalism the political and cultural divisions between us and them an inherent part of our basic moral philosophy? Professor Ellen Buchanan will no doubt be touching on some of these questions as we seek to link these questions to the story of COVID-19. Professor Buchanan, welcome. I invite you now to deliberate on this topic. First of all, I'm very thankful for the invitation to be here. I'm pleased to be here to discuss with you this really urgent issue. And I'd like to put my presentation in context. I was fortunate enough to be a member of an international team that wrote an article that recently appeared in Science entitled An Ethical Framework for Global Vaccine Allocation. Since the article is freely available online, I see no need to go through it here. Instead, I thought I would focus on two issues, one of which was addressed in the article, but all too briefly. We were under very severe limitations of space. And the other issue was in an earlier draft of the article that got cut out completely, again, for space reasons. I think that both of these issues deserve more treatment, and that's what I want to try to do today. So you can view what I'm doing as sort of fleshing out some things that should have been in the science article. Here are the two problems, and there are only two among many others. It's a very complex set of issues. Is national partiality, what some call vaccine nationalism, permissible? And if so, what are its moral limits? And second, what are the ethical obligations of private producers of vaccines regarding fair allocation? And by national partiality, I mean a country giving priority to its own citizens with regard to allocating vaccine doses at its disposal. Here's the extreme version of the national partiality or vaccine nationalism view. The leaders of a country have a fiduciary obligation to act in the best interest of their own people. It is therefore permissible for them to reserve the vaccine available to them exclusively for their own people without regard for the needs of people elsewhere. I think this is wrong, and I think you'll agree with me and see pretty quickly why it is. First, here are some reasons in favor of some degree of national partiality. That is a kind of limited national partiality. First, there are associative ties among co-nationals, and these generate special obligations. And fulfilling these special obligations allows and can in some cases even require some degree of partiality. Second, whether for better or for worse, in our world, states are the primary guarantors of human well-being, and this makes partiality appropriate, if not necessary. Now, what about this idea of special obligations grounded in associative ties? Co-nationals, citizens of a country, are embedded in relationships of interdependence and are bound together by a shared identity rooted in history. Interdependence and shared identity generate special obligations to one another that they do not have to others. To fulfill those obligations, partiality toward fellow citizens may be necessary and hence is permissible. Well, there are limits on any such special obligations. Even special obligations more robust than those of co-nationals toward one another have moral limitations. For example, the special obligations of family members to one another can be overridden in order to protect others from extreme harm, or to avoid acting justly. More specifically, obligations to help realize basic human rights can override special obligations among co-nationals. Further, in our world, individuals and groups often have morally thick relationships with individuals or groups in other countries. 
Also, there can be special ties based on the perpetration of past injustices, for example, colonialism. So a country that was formerly a colonial ruler of a country that's now liberated might have some special obligations toward people in that country. Now, what about this second reason for thinking that some degree of national partiality is appropriate? The idea is that in our world, for better or worse, it's individual states that are the primary guarantors of the conditions for human well-being, and that to fulfill that role, it's best for state leaders to give special priority to the well-being of their citizens. Well, I think this makes a certain amount of sense, but again, there are limitations on whatever partiality this generates. First, international and regional human rights regimes do something to share the burden of individual states in securing the well-being of their citizens. Second, sometimes states can better fulfill their distinctive role by cooperating with other states, where this requires some constraints on partiality by all concerned. Third, fulfilling its primary role of guaranteeing the well-being of its citizens is often compatible with showing concern for non-citizens. Maximizing the interest of its own citizens is not necessary for state leaders to fulfill their fiduciary obligations. And finally, virtually all states have acknowledged human rights obligations that limit national partiality. So here's an interim conclusion. Taken together, the two strongest arguments in favor of national partiality, that is, the idea of special obligations arising from associative ties among citizens, and the idea that states are the main guarantees of human well-being, those arguments in favor of national partiality do not show that states may exercise extreme, that is, limitless partiality. At most, they speak in favor of limited national partiality. Now, here comes the big hard question. If proper national partiality is not unlimited, what exactly are the limits? Well, here's my honest answer. Nobody knows exactly what the limits are. I don't think there are any moral theories on the table presently that can answer that question convincingly. But it is enough to know that whatever the final story is on the exact character of the limits, refusal to give any significant weight to considerations of fair allocation is wrong. Further, in the particular case of allocating vaccine, some proposals for limiting national partiality are more reasonable than others, even if there's not any one uniquely rational solution. Here's one proposal. National partiality in the allocation of COVID-19 vaccine is permissible up to, but not beyond the point at which additional doses for one's own country would provide very meager benefits compared to the harms to others that could be averted by allocating those doses to them. That seems to me to be an intuitively plausible idea. The question is how to operationalize it in a scheme of rationing. Here's one way to operationalize it. Each country is permitted to use the vaccine available to it up to the point where its RT rate, that is the rate of transmission, is below one. The rate of transmission is how many people one infected individual transmits the virus to. Now, after that point, a state has an obligation to allocate its remaining doses to others with RT rates greater than one under a scheme of fair allocation. This is one way of understanding what the limits of national partiality are in the case of the allocation of scarce COVID-19 vaccines. Now, what's the rationale for this proposal? Well, the idea is that, generally speaking, the benefit to a country, C1, of reducing its rate of transmission below one will be much smaller than the benefit to country C2 of enabling it to reduce its rate of transmission to one. So this operationalized limit on national partiality gives some weight to partiality while acknowledging that it has limits. 
what else is to be said in favor of this kind of rule of thumb or heuristic for limiting national partiality? The best argument for the RT1 rule is that it's a reasonable heuristic or proxy for a much more complicated attempt to compare cost and benefits of various degrees of partiality and settle on a proper balancing of partiality versus cosmopolitan moral commitments. The idea is that to get agreement on a global rationing scheme, we need such a simplified, easily understandable, and applicable heuristic. I think that the RT1 rule fits that bill. I'd like to note that the RT1 rule is recommended, though not argued for in any detail, in the article in Science that I mentioned earlier. Here's the second hard problem, and I have to consider it even more briefly, I'm afraid. What are the obligations, if any, of private producers of vaccines to help achieve fair global allocation? Now, here are three reasons to think that they have some obligations, though perhaps quite limited ones. First, in most countries, large producers are the recipients of large amounts of public funds, in some cases, funds from foreign sources, for example, WHO. Second, many large producers have publicly acknowledged moral responsibilities more generally, and some have specifically publicly committed to fair rationing of COVID-19 vaccines. Third, in dire emergencies, even private entities, whether corporations or individuals, that have no pre-existing obligations can come to have obligations to rescue. So there are two questions that arise regarding production surpluses. First, suppose a producer is contracted with some country or group of countries to sell them X number of doses of the vaccines they will produce. Suppose also that the producer has considerable excess capacity. They will produce more vaccine than they are contractually obligated for or can produce more at little cost. And here it's important to remember that generally speaking, the marginal cost of drugs is negligible. Once you've gone through the research and development and produced some amount of the drugs, producing additional units of it is usually of trivial cost. Question, do producers have an obligation to allocate their surplus production fairly? Second, is such an obligation conditional on other producers doing the same? Third, if it is conditional on that, do producers have an obligation to cooperate together to ensure that they all allocate their surpluses fairly? Assuming that they do have an obligation to allocate their surpluses fairly, to what extent do they have discretion to settle on a conception of fairness to employ? Or should they use the same fair rationing scheme that's been adopted by countries or some significant group of countries? Another question. In deciding how much vaccine to contractually obligate themselves to deliver to a country or group of countries, should producers take into account how this will affect their capacity to produce vaccines at no cost or lower cost to other countries? Here's my answer to the two main questions. I think producers do have an obligation to allocate surplus fairly. And I also think that they should take the need for fair allocation into account in deciding how much of their production to reserve for sale to richer countries. In other words, I think it would be inappropriate for producers to exhaust their productive capacity in a contract with richer countries and not have any resources left to provide for less fortunate countries. Now, full disclosure, I don't have a developed argument yet to support either claim, but I think you can begin to see what the shape of that kind of argument would be it would refer back to the earlier reasons to think that private producers do have some obligations, and in particular to the idea that in a dire emergency, they have a kind of duty of rescue, which places some limits on simply maximizing profit. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Professor Buchanan. You've really crafted a complex but interlinked picture of the relationship between private entities and the nation state as far as vaccines in the market and vaccines and the role they should play in regards to its citizenry. I'm very, very interested in your comment around how former colonies do or they or don't they have obligations to the former colonized nations, as well as your remark that private entities at some point, as you concluded, should have an obligation to make vaccines available. So bringing in a little bit of the discussion around profits and obligations and responsibilities to the citizenry as a whole. It is my pleasure now to turn to another part of the world also grappling with vaccine development by introducing Professor Glenda Gray. Professor Glenda Gray is the first female president and CEO of the South African Medical Research Council. She is the chair of the Research Committee on COVID-19, bringing together scientific evidence and experience to the Minister of Health and the National Coronavirus Command Council in South Africa. Grace Beer heads the MRC funding broadly and for COVID-19. Grace studied medicine and pediatrics at Wits University in South Africa, where she remains a full professor in the School of Clinical Medicine. A National Research Foundation A1-rated scientist, Gray is world-renowned for her research in HIV vaccines and interventions to prevent mother-to-child transmission of HIV. Forms has named Professor Gray one of Africa's 50 most powerful women and time as one of the world's 100 most influential people. Professor Gray, what a profound honor to have you on this call and for you to bring your insights to the topic of vaccine development, distribution, and justice. We welcome your remarks. Thanks, Tanya. And thank you, Ellen, for setting the scene and for giving me some nice things to hang on to as part of the discussion. I'm going to start off basically to reflect on what the COVID-19 epidemic exposed at a global level. What we saw, whether you were a rich or poor country, whether you were in the north or south, is that the COVID-19 epidemic exposed at a global level the lack of resilience of the health system. We saw this in New York, and we saw this in Spain, and we saw this in the UK, extraordinary in the UK, and we saw this in places like South Africa, and we saw a health system that could not manage both the epidemic and other diseases at the same time, which led in South Africa to a lot of collateral damage to the health system, which affected TB diagnosis, HIV management, and even antenatal care and immunization, so vaccine immunization. But also at a global level, it exposed the lack of diagnostics. We saw a huge fight at a country level for PCR material, for viral reagents. When our country shut down, there was a fight with tests being redirected to the US and we could not get diagnostics into our country. So it disabled us in our ability to actually scale up testing in the country. We saw it in the beginning with the lack of global availability of something as simple as an RT-PCR test and nasal swabs. So we can't even get nasal swabs right, imagine, with vaccines. We also saw a global shortage of PPE. And at times when countries were trying to procure PPE from China, planes being diverted from low-middle-income countries to higher-resource countries and fights at PPE level for masks that was destined for healthcare workers in South Africa to healthcare workers in the USA. No healthcare worker should be without PPE, but there was a scramble for scarce resources like PPE and also a lack of good quality PPEs. And in certain countries, particularly in Africa, an African scramble and a South African scramble for even something like oxygen. In some parts of South Africa, 
patients were grabbing oxygen from each other. So when we talk about vaccine access, we have to see it in the context at a global level. In a pandemic, there's a lack of access to even something like nasal swabs and viral transport medium and to diagnostics and the very things that healthcare workers need to protect themselves when they manage people with COVID and the very thing like oxygen. We can't deliver oxygen. How do we get vaccines to people? So that was the context. At a global level, there's a lack of resilience. And there's a lack of resilience in South Africa and there's a lack of resilience of healthcare in the UK. That's something we first have to do when we get past this pandemic is to see how do we make health systems more resilient and how do we address the global financing of healthcare and make it equitable. So I think that's the context where we should see vaccine access. How does global financing work and how does global financing work in the health sector for equipment, drugs, diagnostics and vaccines? That is the context I want to talk about. At this moment in time in vaccine development, we are blessed with more than 200 products being developed 37 of them in clinical trials and a lot of vaccine in advanced stage clinical development with a couple of vaccines that we might see readouts in late December, early January. The front runners are obviously the AstraZeneca, the Moderna, the Novavax and the A26 program. But strange to say is that even at the beginning of the vaccine development, there was preference in where you test the vaccine. And so with Operation Warp Speed and BADA, Moderna was only tested in the U.S., so those of us who were involved in clinical trials, there was a mad scramble for vaccine scientists and vaccinologists in other countries to be able to evaluate the vaccine in their country. We were fortunate enough to have a relationship with the CHADOX before AstraZeneca acquired it. And so the first trial to happen in South Africa was the CHADOX trial, Novavax and A26. So the first BADA OWS trial to work outside the US is the Johnson & Johnson A26. So even at the testing evaluation, the US population were the first in line and at least with CHADOX, there was much more commitment to work in Brazil and South Africa and the UK as well as in the USA. So there's preference in where you test your product also a mad scramble at an African level to get other countries wanting to test products in South Africa and discussions with companies from China were part of the process about getting vaccine development. So I think the first thing about vaccine access is just the lack of interest in evaluating your vaccine in populations that are supposedly to be beneficiaries, the disadvantaged, the minorities and the people who come from poor-income countries. So everyone pays lip service to the fact that the disadvantage in the world should get access, but there's very little appetite to even evaluate your vaccines in low-middle-income country settings. And luckily, South Africa, with its clinical trial infrastructure, has been able to leverage its ability to conduct clinical trials, which of course is important because when you're looking at vaccine access, you also have to get regulatory authorities that will license your product. And the regulatory authorities will want to see local data and will want to have had experience with the product and an understanding of the manufacturability and the GMP processes. So to exclude developing countries from vaccine development is to exclude regulatory authorities in those countries from the necessary skills that they require to register these products in their countries. So when WHO speaks about access, we also have to talk about the regulatory and licensure processes that have to happen and the cold chain management that has to happen in poor countries. So I think those are the contexts in which we talk about global equity and vaccine equity Notwithstanding all the barriers that I've put together, how do we at a global level ensure global access and what are the international cooperations that we require? So we do see a couple of models and we see the global financing with COVAX, which is an international mechanism that talks to global equity. It's a collaboration between CEPI, Gavi, WHO and the Vaccine Alliance. 
The idea is to accelerate the development and manufacturing of COVID vaccines and to make available 2 billion doses to high-risk people in populations. But this is only 20%. So even when you start to talk about the COVAX international financing mechanism, there's a catch. <laughs> you can get 20% of the vaccine from this area. So the global financing mechanism is already telling you to gate access. And by financing this, you may only get maybe 20% of vaccine into your country. That's one of the problems with this global financing mechanism because it already gates you and makes you choose who should get it. With the COVAX, they talk about the self-financing. So the rich countries can self-finance and they can get the vaccine for 61 cents a dose. But if you go for a purchase option arrangement, because you might have some bilateral agreement, this puts the cost of the vaccine up to three, four, ten times more. So the devil's in the detail in terms of the international mechanisms. We have seen how sometimes the international mechanisms can be problematic. So with Gavi and low middle income countries with HPV access, middle income countries didn't get access because we were too rich to afford HPV. And so never ever were the beneficiaries of some of the vaccines that were available for global access. So those are some of the issues that you find. So low and middle income countries, besides the international mechanisms by COVAX, are going to have to think about bilateral agreements with other governments and bilateral agreements with pharmaceuticals to access vaccines themselves. So the more vaccines that work, the better the prices are going to be and the more global access we're going to have. For South Africa, I would like to see that we are involved in both the COVAX interventions as well as bilateral agreement with pharma. For instance, Johnson & Johnson has offered a not-for-profit price because South Africa is involved in the J&J vaccine trial. So obviously we would be looking for not-for-profit prices at a bilateral, but there may even be bilaterals with other countries. And so what happens if South Africa gets into a bilateral with China for its vaccine or Russia for its vaccine? And how do we do that? And that's an important, interesting thing, because when we talk about the kind of financing offers, you know, South Africa could go in with BRICS, South Africa could go in with static or with the AU or with the African region and part of an African or a BRICS initiative to bulk buy and have access in that way. So we would have to think about how we would do that. Where would South Africa benefit the most? Should we go with BRICS? Should we go with the AU or should we go with static or should we talk to our rich Northern Hemisphere partners and see whether we can get bilaterals with them? Prioritizing. Obviously, there are certain prefaces. If we only had 20%, who should get it first? Obviously, you want to benefit the population, you want to limit harm. So in that scenario, it would be the elderly and it would be the healthcare workers or any frontline workers who interface with the public all the time. There's talk about prioritizing disadvantaged populations. And that's incredibly important because we see in the US, the most disadvantaged populations are the least likely to want to enroll into vaccine trials. And that there's a huge problem with enrolling African-Americans, Latinx, ex, Hispanics and Indigenous people in vaccine trials because they don't trust the clinical trialists. So how do you prioritise disadvantaged people when they don't even trust you enough to enrol into a clinical trial? And that's an important issue around equity. How do you engage disadvantaged people and how do you get them to be part of clinical trials and address the issues of distrust of science? Then there's the issue of obviously nationalism and South Africa is an important place to talk about nationalism because we also have issues of xenophobia. So if we talk about citizens in South Africa, we should make sure that we get away from the word of citizen because that could mean that we disadvantage a whole lot of people who are foreign nationals and who are living in South Africa without citizenship. 
So I get worried when we talk about vaccine nationalism because in South Africa, it would mean that we disadvantage a whole lot of people who live in our borders who aren't South African citizens. Then there's the issue of populations who may not directly benefit, but vaccinating them would benefit others. And that's the issue of children. Children we know have been hugely spared by adverse events from the infections. They're largely asymptomatic and they're not really huge vectors of viral transmission. But vaccinating them could protect adults and could protect their grandparents and could protect elderly populations. So what is the role of vaccinating people to protect others? So where they may not immediately benefit from a vaccine, them not getting infected may benefit their parents and their grandparents. What are the ethics of targeting groups that may not benefit directly, but will help others like university students in the US and in Europe and the young, where them going out causes a huge surge of infection, but they largely are going to have asymptomatic disease. So if you vaccinate them, you may protect the elderly. And, you know, what are the issues around that? And then I was on a call just now listening to some immunogenicity and safety data on the vaccine. And someone was mentioning the issue around travel and that you may need a vaccine to travel. And this gave me heartburn because imagine if we are in Africa and we need to travel to Europe and we can only travel to Europe or wherever if we have a vaccine, but no vaccine is registered in our country, which means that we can't travel. So that's one issue. So if you have to have a vaccine to travel, that is a huge problem for countries that don't have access. Maybe if you don't have the right vaccine, so maybe you get the Chinese vaccine or the Russian vaccine, And then you go into another country and people may not want to recognize the effectiveness or efficiency of that vaccine. So will there be vaccine elitism that's coming where the poor people get the least efficacious vaccines and then you can't get into a country because there's the whole issue of that. So there are huge issues around vaccine access. Vaccines normally are much cheaper to produce than remdesivir. So there's an interesting conversation. We talk about vaccine affordability and access. However, that's probably one of the cheapest interventions we can give people, 50 US cents a dose, $3 a dose, $20 a dose, compared to remdesivir, which I think was $3,000 a dose. And no one's talking about access to remdesivir. We're talking about how we're going to get everyone access to a vaccine. And yet we're silent about the very drugs that may help us with treatment. And that's an interesting conversation. Where are the forums about drug access for treatment of COVID-19? Where are those conversations? How come we're not talking about remdesivir in these forums? And that's an interesting thing. It's easy to talk about vaccine access because I guess it's cheaper than drug access and makes us feel better about giving access to the world. So I do think vaccines largely are going to be affordable. Our job is to make sure that they get made in bulk with billions of doses so that everybody can get it. And then you mentioned the issue of RT, and that's a lovely concept, but that always depends on testing availability and the fact that you have to go to scale to test. Use RT as a method. We all have to know what our reproductive rate is, and that means we have to test X amount of people per 100,000. So that makes me a little bit worried because we all under-test. South Africa has underpenetrated in terms of testing, and if we use it as a metrics, we're never going to know what our RT rate is, maybe in South Africa, but maybe not in India maybe not in Brazil. So RT may be a huge problem in countries that are underpenetrated, maybe not in Peru and Venezuela. And so we might prejudice a whole lot of countries if we expect them to take testing to scale to measure the reproductive rate. I think we just need to think that out and are there proxies for RT that don't disadvantage poor countries. So I think I've spoke a lot. 
I hope it has been of value, but I do think that there are global issues that we have to discuss and vaccine access is part of a huge global problem. When pandemics happen, we see the holes in every health system in the world and we see how we scramble for everything from nasal swabs to oxygen. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Professor Gray. It's quite a daunting picture when you think about vaccine elitism. I didn't even think about the fact that some vaccines will be more privileged than others when you talk about Russian versus Chinese and that the conversation isn't around which vaccine has the most effect, is the most affordable and can reach the most in our population. So it really gives us a lot to think about. We've seen these holes as you've laid out for us in the system, in the global financing of healthcare. And the question for me is, is the sector going to do anything about it? Because we keep hearing that this is the first of many pandemics. But thank you so much for a really interesting picture of where we are with vaccine development and access. At this point, we'll tend to think more around questions of community engagement. And it's an honor for me to introduce my friend and colleague, Tian Johnson. He joins us in multiple capacities today. Tian is the convener of the Global Civil Society Platform for COVID-19 Research and Advocacy. They are the founder of African Alliance, which is a South Africa-based NGO focused on creating political and social incentives to accelerate the realization of health rights and dignity. And they are also a civil society observer of the Robert Carr Fund, which supports regional and global civil society and community networks in the area of HIV. An African gender non-conforming activist, Tian has worked for two decades to strengthen community-based and national networks and programs in Africa with a focus on women's rights, gender equity, education for girls, the advancements of sexual health and rights, increasing access to new HIV prevention technologies, and a host of other areas, including in the area of HIV and gender-based violence. Tian, it's wonderful to have you in this webinar. We now invite you to share your reflections on where we're at as far as vaccine development, distribution, and justice. Thank you so much, Tanya. It's a pleasure to join everyone. Hello, everyone. I think it's been a really great discussion. Glenda got me going when she started speaking about citizenship and that concept in the country. I believe we live in one of the most Afrophobic countries in the world. And just the thoughts of the amounts of sex workers who have been denied, for example, food assistance during this time of COVID because they did not have identification documents really drove that point home. I'm going to share a few overarching remarks. And I really want to speak about some of the issues that we face along the road to access. We know that research has not always centered participants or even communities where that research is carried out. And that really situates and contextualizes our work for accountable and community-owned research, in this case, vaccine research. Glenda spoke a bit about the structure called COVAX. And we know that the World Health Organization and international donors have created this body to make sure that poor countries get their fair share of a COVID-19 vaccine when it comes. But who'll be watching as the world's leaders and scientists decide who gets and who goes without? The globe's best hope for an accountable and transparent process can't be left to chance, but it also can't be left to our government officials and our donors. COVID-19 has really highlighted some of the reasons why South Africa is frequently cited as one of the most unequal societies in the world. In some areas, communities say that they have celebrated the advent of COVID-19, as they have received running water for the first time in their lives, as the country approaches three decades of democracy. And this water was not brought to them as a result of a thoughtful and accountable government process. It was brought to them by the pressure and on the back of a global wave of urgent hand-washing messaging. So we had a national level government encouraging people, wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. 
with what water, they would ask. We still have communities in this country, maybe 30 years into democracy, that don't have running water and that don't have toilets. So it really highlighted that growth inequality. We also live in a country that is frequently characterized as the rape capital of the world, with staggering rates of GBV and femicide, which lockdown exacerbated. And we saw an increase in the already alarming rates of violence. Schools shut down, and we saw a generation of mostly young black children from underdeveloped communities being kept back, while their counterparts in wealthier areas logged on to Zoom lessons. They logged on to their team sessions with their classmates in the safety of their homes, with electricity, running water, and food in the fridge. So while civil society did what we do and we organized, we agitated and mobilized communities to meet the moment, it became clear that a tsunami of research for vaccines and therapeutics was rapidly approaching. Parts of civil society were confident that frameworks and regulations that in some cases were put in place even before they were legally required would ensure the protection of research participants. There remained a clear and justified need to ensure that civil society played its traditional watchdog and accountability role when it came to COVID-19 research. But of course, this fell at the door of civil society at the outset, when funding for our work was already stretched on existing interventions, exacerbated by government's reliance on civil society to provide essential services in the GBV, HIV, TB and STI spaces, which was made worse by a fragile public health system that has been rooted in apartheid, which is this two-pronged system based on race and class, where the wealthy can afford high-quality private care and the poor have to rely on high-quality but erratic health services at a public level, plagued by shortages, ongoing strikes and maladministration. So we've learned a lot, but a few things stand out for me. In the early days of the pandemic, for example, we saw a privately funded COVID-19 research trial that refused to procure protective equipment for the healthcare workers that it was using in its research, despite there being persistent national shortages. So you had privately funded COVID-19 research trials putting additional pressure on a system that was already played by Stockards for the most basic protective equipment for healthcare workers. That reminded us that we need to continue to be vigilant in our work to ensure that research is community-owned. This is not a given, despite the seemingly clear logic behind this approach. So community involvement in vaccine development and access still remains a key advocacy demand from protocol design to post-trial access. We saw the structures, for example, that Glenda leads, the SAMRC, stepping up and supporting the work of civil society to hold research accountable, to chip away at the rising wave of anti-vaxxer momentum on social media, and to meaningfully engage communities on their lived realities as it related, for example, to COVID community screening. We were reminded of the power of political will when barriers that have long stood in the way of our progress in other areas were broken down. We saw the deployment of technology that, for example, resulted in over 2 million South Africans electronically self-testing for COVID-19. In 2010, South Africa hosted a soccer World Cup and set up these specialized sexual offenses courts to deal with the anticipated increase in sexual violence during the tournament. Those were hugely effective and they have since mostly shut down, despite calls from civil society who has seen the impact of bringing justice to communities. Now you might ask, what is the relevance of a soccer World Cup and the COVID moment? I think it's very relevant because we've seen similar gains that have been made during COVID that civil society must be funded to protect. Some of these are rapid decision-making timeframes on a range of issues. The availability to the public of data, for example, that assisted us to hold those in power accountable. The rise in multi-sectoral work and seeing partnerships that would have not happened prior to COVID-19 bring us impact in new ways. So, for example, we knew that one in five South Africans were struggling to access chronic medication under the lockdown and as a result of a public-private partnership, then saw Uber and Bolt partnering 
to deliver over 600,000 packages of chronic treatment in a very short period. So what stops us from using that capacity to strengthen adherence of treatment across the board, to employ such partnerships to deal with our absurd backlog of rape kits, our sustained lack of DNA testing capacity to secure rape convictions, to ensure that any woman who wants to can have doorstep access to reproductive health products. So unlike HIV and AIDS, our government's initial response to COVID has been based on science and evidence. So we are excited that we have opportunities here and front of mind is really to secure the political support and financing for universal health coverage. We identify COVID-19 as one pandemic. We have no doubts in our mind that another pandemic is coming. So we view this as an opportunity to really reflect, revise, do our homework and prepare for the next wave. So after we've identified and mobilized for financing around universal healthcare coverage and identified the low-hanging fruits that exist to make urgent and dramatic changes to address social and structural determinants of health. So moving forward, the global body that I referenced at the outset of my remarks called COVAX has been tasked with ensuring the equitable distribution of COVID-19 vaccines when they come, has finally agreed after months of lobbying to include civil society on key forums that will decide the future of the COVID-19 response. And so the hard work must start now. We know that millions of dollars invested in an acceptable, effective and safe vaccine will come to nothing if communities in all of their diversity are not engaged and involved in the research. And we know that COVID-19 vaccine research cannot and should not happen at any cost. So we are under no illusions and it is very likely that when a vaccine comes, we will need to continue to advocate, to take to the streets, to agitate, to disrupt, to face yet again the racialized and gendered injustice that has characterized our world and our work in civil society over the years, as we did with antiretrovirals, as we did with condoms, as we did with contraceptive access, and as we will no doubt need to do with big pharma and the anti-vaxxer movement. So this is just one struggle of many. But in the meantime, we push ahead for a call for COVID-19 vaccines, diagnostics, tests, and treatments provided free of charge to everyone everywhere. And that's part of the call of the People's Vaccine Initiative. But we'd like to add a few more words. And that is, we have to do this through the lens and understanding that nothing will happen about us without us. Thank you, Tanya. Very, very powerful remarks, Tian. Thank you so much. I think you really laid the connection between prevailing inequities and injustices and how they've been simultaneously amplified during COVID, but also how bizarre that people are welcoming COVID because, yay, finally we have water. Such a contradiction. So it really brings to heart the motivations for service delivery, that they are not moral or ethical in many times, but they are motivated by other external pressures and pushes within this global context we find ourselves in. So thank you so much for bringing issues of accountability into this conversation and the role that civil society plays, filling a gap at the end of service delivery but also really motivating government to step up. It brings us back to Professor Buchanan's conversation and where the government and where nation and citizenship come into play in this vaccine trial. So thank you for that. It's my honor to turn over the final closing remarks to our acting ED, Evie O'Brien. Evie, your closing remarks are welcome. <laughs> thank you, Tanya. It's my honor to thank everyone, to thank in particular our speakers, Thank you for your inspiration, your thought leadership, for weaving together such an incredible basket of knowledge that has catalyzed our thinking. So thank you, Professor Buchanan, Professor Gray, Tian. Thank you for honoring this community. And huge thanks to everyone on this call. It never ceases to amaze all of us 
how profound the diversity is across these communities, Rhodes, Roddenberry, Atlantic, Obama, yet how united we are in the pursuit of equity and justice. Our next webinar is on appropriately new forms of activism, the good trouble. So new as in K-N-E-W, and how do we bridge where we are, the spaces and places that we resist, that we mobilise, whether in academic spaces, on front lines, how do we together in that activism bring about the change that we want to see? So again, thank you, everyone, and take care.